All right. We are in the book of Matthew, and we're engaged in some discussions of that, doing this a little different where we break between each section to do the Q&A. Um, uh, our discussions have historically addressed here, uh, at least in this, in this gospel, um, the little or great faith, uh, getting Jesus wrong, people misunderstanding him, text and tradition where there is a discussion of the religious tradition versus the biblical text, and manifestation of the kingdom through the teachings, miracles, and parables of Jesus. Um, with the idea that Isaiah said, he that hath, uh, Isaiah said that uh, God was going to stop the understanding of um, many of his people, a partial hardening, as, as uh, uh, Paul says. And the, uh, the theme that shows up again and again in, in the ministry of Jesus is, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the idea is that there are some who are given to be able to understand, and the rest are kept from understanding. Now that's a temporary thing in order for the gospel ultimately to get to us as Gentiles. And then of course the scripture says all Israel will be saved and there will be resurrection from the dead. Last week we returned to the manifestations of the kingdom and I addressed the need for humility which is the kingdom mindset. A humility that challenges human pride and self but because of pride and self, we fall into temptation that certainly leads us away from humility. So we examine the place of a child in the context of them being without status. And we'll see that again in the text this week. And we, we, need, we also saw that we need to deny ourselves any aspect that would cause us to stumble. And particularly when we would stumble one of the little ones who believes in him. And then forgiveness is to be continuous. We remember the, the statement of uh, Peter saying seven times, and Jesus said, no, 490 times, seven times 70. Uh, so this week we're going to continue in that same context. We're going to pick up at chapter 19. Now chapter 19 is normally looked at different than I'm going to do this week. We normally go to chapter 19 in, in sermons and teachings to address the issue of divorce and remarriage. And while that's talked about in this section, I think that Matthew is tying together the themes that he's talked about in Jesus' ministry that talks about arrogance and pride and, and, and humility. So I've titled this Kingdom-Minded. Kingdom-Minded is the idea that one is humble or hard-hearted. And that's usually what happens when we become arrogant, our heart hardens. So we're going to begin with chapter 19, verse 1. And it says that Jesus finished these words. He was talking to them about forgiving one another, that if we don't forgive, God will not forgive. And he said then, um, he, went, he left Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him. And he healed them there. And Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? 
And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who were made that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now this passage, as I said, is constantly used to talk about God's attitude about marriage and divorce, particularly because this is one of two passages, both found in Matthew, where there is an exception. In the other Gospels, Jesus simply says, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. In this case, he says, except for immorality. And I'll talk about that, but I want to get the main context here, is that the, the uh, Pharisees are testing Jesus. Uh, this is not uh, a, uh, a question that they're not familiar with. In fact, among the Pharisees, there were two positions. One was that based on the Deuteronomy 24 passage, a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. She burns the eggs, she looks at him funny, doesn't like the way her hair's done, he can divorce her. And the other group said it can only be done if she is unfaithful. Uh, those two schools are often uh, un, um, brought up in this context. And often people think that the one who says he can divorce her for any reason uh, is wrong. And Jesus is siding with the ones who say if she's unfaithful. Uh, I think that's missing the point. I actually think that the one who says he can divorce her for any reason at all is the one that Jesus is explaining and it's in the context of humility and forgiveness. So I want us to keep that in mind. So, Jesus is asked about divorce. His answer is unexpected. He immediately goes to Genesis and says, He made them in the beginning male and female. He said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. They're now one flesh. What God has joined together, no man is to separate. So Jesus doesn't take on, he knows where they're, what they're asking. He knows they're asking about the Deuteronomy passage. But he's going to the origin of marriage and God's intent. So then they say, well, why did Moses command to give her a, a writing of divorcement? Now, this is a little bit misleading. Moses didn't command that they divorce their wife and give her a certificate. What he commanded was, if you put your wife away, if you separate from her, you give her a writing of divorcement. This actually, this document is the man taking responsibility 
for giving up his wife. Which allows her then to remarry. The scripture then says if she remarries and the second one sets her apart with the writing of divorcement or the second one dies, she can never go back to the first one. I want you to notice that a second marriage forever ends the first. Uh, There are pastors who tell people you've remarried, you shouldn't be remarried, you should divorce and go back to the first person. The Bible forbids that. Uh, It's the one clear statement we have about these things. Others are hotly debated. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus is uh, going to be then asked directly, okay, why does Moses give us this commandment about the writing of divorcement? And Jesus doesn't give a justification. He gives an explanation. He says, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. In other words, the purpose of that commandment is to protect the wife and take the responsibility and put it on the one who is divorcing their spouse. And so he says, so I tell you that if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. Except, he says, for fornication. Now, as I said, the other Gospels don't have that exception. I believe Matthew has that exception in these places because he is addressing the betrothal period. During the betrothal period, you guys are familiar with this, the couple are not living together and they are not sexually active. And therefore, if there is an unfaithfulness during that period, then there can be an exception with the writing of divorcement. That's what Joseph was going to do with Mary when he discovered she was pregnant and they were betrothed. He knew he hadn't been with her, so somebody has been with her. And he was going, being a just man, being a righteous man, he was going to put her away privately. And what happens is the Lord sent uh, the angel to tell him she hasn't been immoral Take her as your wife. He took her that night, moved in with her. But the scripture is very clear because when they come together, the idea would be that they would be sexually active. And he says he kept her a virgin until she brought forth her firstborn. So Matthew's giving us very clear details about this issue of the betrothal period and the marriage period in in the Jewish context, which is not our situation. Once couples have come together, they are one flesh, and Jesus says, you don't separate that. That would require an enormous amount of humility and an enormous amount of forgiveness to one another to keep from doing that. We all know that marital relationships are not easy. Uh, And they're even more difficult in a culture that is ripping marriages apart. And so Jesus gives us God's intent, but he says that there was a permission to divorce, but that was really to protect the wife from that kind of a husband. That was what the one group said. What woman wants to be married to someone who would be willing to divorce her if he doesn't like her haircut or he doesn't like what she cooked for breakfast, right? That would be a disaster for most women. And so if he's that big an idiot, he can put her away and he'll answer to God and she's now released from that, from that chaos. So this is the 
general essence of what's going on here, and I believe it makes more sense in the context of humility and forgiveness, which those of you who are marriage counselors know that one of the things we don't see a lot when couples are fighting with each other is humility and forgiveness. They are arguing for their place. They're arguing for their being right about something, and they're not looking to reconcile often. They're looking to be justified. And that is very difficult in a relationship if you're constantly having to defend yourself or accuse the other one. Relationships just don't survive that kind of thing. So I'm going to stop it there in case I've triggered some uh, questions or comments. Well, that's good. Let's go back in. Uh, I didn't finish it all. I didn't get to the part about the, the eunuchs. Um, the disciples know that Jesus is basically not giving any excuse for divorce. He's giving a reason why people divorce. Somebody gets a hard heart towards the other one and towards God, and then uh, they're out of there. So Jesus says there are some men who are eunuchs. Eunuchs are people who are not capable of marrying and having children. Some are born that way, and that's a, a shame. And then, in biblical times, there were men who were made eunuchs as slaves because they were going to be in charge of uh, the women, right? Uh, And that prevented any problem there. Jesus is basically talking about a man who abstains from a relationship for the kingdom of God's sake. Now, historically, many, many people Christians have interpreted this as a denial of self to marriage for the purpose of going into ministry. I don't believe that's what this text is talking about. I believe that this is a person who is in a marriage that is not being reconciled and the person is functioning as for all intents and purposes, as a eunuch awaiting either the reconciliation or... In other words, this is similar to what Jesus has said in the earlier chapter. If your right eye offends you and causes you to stumble, pluck it out and cast it away from you. If your hand uh, causes you to offend, cut it off from you. If in your marriage your sexuality is going to create a disruption, you deny that for yourself, for the sake of the kingdom. And he says that it's a rare person that can understand that and do that. I have known some people who have uh, uh, had a situation where their spouse was incapable of marital relationships and they stayed in the marriage, stayed faithful in the marriage uh, for all intents and purposes, being a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom and the vow that they had made. So I don't think this is about a vow to go into ministry. Uh, I know it was terribly misunderstood in, in the early centuries so that people were engaging in mutilation when they, when they thought these verses needed to be taken literally. I think they're figurative in that sense. So I think that answers part of it, right? So in that, so... Uh, so you're bringing up First Corinthians, and I don't have time to go into all of that, but let me do it real quickly. Paul uh, says, the Lord says, not me, the Lord says, 
The husband is not to divorce his wife, and the wife is not to divorce her husband. That's Jesus' statement. He's basically quoting this. Paul then talks about a person who is married to an unbeliever. And what he's really talking about are two unbelievers who are married, and one of them becomes a believer. And he basically says, the believer is not to divorce the unbeliever, but the unbeliever can leave if they want. And when that happens, the believer, the brother or sister, is not bound to that marriage. Uh, I think there's a third section that I talk about, and that is a person who thinks they're a believer but isn't. And a person who's a believer, and we're stuck with this person claiming to be a believer but acting like an unbeliever. And then I use 1 Corinthians 5 to say it's at some point that the congregation needs to use what Jesus said in Matthew 18 and treat that one as a publican and a sinner. In other words, the congregation declares that person to be an unbeliever and now that, that changes that marriage from a believer-believer marriage into a believer-unbeliever marriage. And so, uh, I know that's got all kinds of implications, but that's what I think is going on. So I do think Paul's doing that. Are we still running or are we not running? Okay. So, any other questions? And I'll just move on. Okay. So we're going to pick it up at verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Now remember why the disciples might rebuke them. Now he's just had a conversation where they said, who's greatest in the kingdom? And he puts a child in front of them and he says, "This you've got to be like this ch- child. Children had no status. And the adults did everything. And so Jesus says, you have to humble yourself like this little child. So these children are coming and the parents are having Jesus lay his hands on them and bless and the disciples go, we don't have time for this. Uh, we have, we, we've got adult stuff to do, right? And so Jesus says to them, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then he laid his hands on them and then he departed from there. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is made up of people who don't matter to the world, but matter to God. Again, this is found in Corinthians when Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the weak things and the base things and the things that are nothing to bring to nothing the things that think they are so that no flesh can boast in front of God. So the child who has no status is the picture of the kingdom of God where it is the the Lord's glory and the Lord's grace and the Lord's mercy that allows them to be there. So the scripture says, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Right. So these, these things are, are really uh, critically important. So any question on that one? Um, yes. Any other questions? Uh, Questions on that? Are we running or not running? Okay, we're running? Okay. So, I'm going to pick it up at 16. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. 
And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus takes the latter parts of the commandments, the ones that are often associated with loving your neighbor as yourself, and he concludes with that statement rather than loving God. In other words, there is a priority of loving your neighbor and loving God. John tells us, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, right? So the priority of those commandments is interesting here. So the young man said, all of these I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, notice the word complete. He doesn't say if you wish to be saved. If you wish to be complete, that is a full disciple, sell your possessions, give to the poor, And you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he is one who owed much property. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they're astonished and said, who then can be saved? Because they're thinking, this guy's kept the commandments. The commandments don't save anyone. The denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus is what brings the salvation. The reward in heaven is coming from the stewardship of your property here. So they say, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with people it is impossible. We can't save ourselves. But with God, all things are possible. Now, what we see here is a reflection of the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus talked about uh, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then worrying about goods and those kinds of things. But more importantly, we are confronted with the parable of the sower, where the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The rich are going to always struggle with this world because they're much more in this world than the poor. And so this young man had to decide whether he was going to live with the priority of this world or the next, and he clearly chose the next. Though keeping the commandments, his heart, his treasure, was in this world. Now Peter picks up at that point and says, Lord, and notice Matthew keeps having Peter be the one who comes and says, what about this and what about this? Uh, Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you that, uh, that you have, you who have followed me in the generation, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. In other words, you who have followed me in the resurrection, restoration of the kingdom, 
when I am seated on my throne, the throne of David, and I am ruling over the world as king of kings, you will sit with me on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, in addition, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Notice this focus is the stewardship is about the reward. The faith is about salvation. The following Jesus is about salvation the serving the next world as a steward instead of this world is about the reward. And of course, Jesus says uh, that um, no one's going to go unrewarded for what they've done in the context of this life. So salvation is an act of God alone through Jesus. Nothing we can do can add to that or subtract from it. Um, but our place in the kingdom and the reward that we have is based on our stewardship and obedience. That's why he said to the young man, if you want to be complete, sell what you have and give to the poor. In other words, put your treasure in heaven. Right? Seek the righteousness of God which is by faith and then the obedience of God which is stewardship and you will have eternal life and reward." be a terrible thing to have reward and no eternal life. It's better to have eternal life and no reward, but that's, Paul says, why would you do that? Right? That's, that's his argument several times. Run that you may receive. So, he then says one statement, many who are first will be last and the last first. That statement leads us into chapter 20, which I can't go into. So let me give you the conclusion uh, at this point, and then we'll do any Q&A that you have. And I'll actually be done early for once. Huh? We are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That righteousness of God, which Paul talks about in Romans, is granted by grace through faith. We can't add to it. We can't separate it. Uh, we can't subtract to it. Those who have that faith understand that this life and this world are nothing compared to the kingdom. And therefore, our life's direction and stewardship must be kingdom-minded, brought on by humility, and kingdom-focused, brought on by obedience and self-denial for the sake of others. I believe ultimately this enters into every aspect of our lives. Our marriages, our work, the way we treat people, the way we help others, all of those things. When the Lord returns, He's bringing salvation, but He says, my reward is with me. Now, we have, we have two errors that have happened both in Judaism and Christianity. Paul describes it in Judaism that those who are ignorant of the righteousness of God, which is by faith, then seek to establish their own righteousness. Now, think about that. If you seek to establish your own righteousness, is that going to make you humble or proud? 
It's going to make you proud as you compare yourself to the least of others, right? But if you are seeking the righteousness of God, and you know our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags, we humble ourselves before God, and He forgives us, and then we forgive one another, because we have been forgiven, which is what He said in the parable, and the humility then grows out of this knowing that we have nothing to offer God. But then everything that we do have can be offered in service of the kingdom. As the prayer so wonderfully said at the beginning of the service. This this seeking to take what God has given us and use it, distribute it, so that the kingdom is manifest in the present time. And Jesus says, those who give those things up For that purpose, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, will receive multitude rewards in the regeneration and eternal life. Which is interesting that he says it in that way, because if my eschatology is correct, there will be the restored kingdom, where we will certainly be resurrected, but there will be a manifestation of this creation at its fullness. And then that will pass away with, with fire and a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem in which there will be no sin, no sorrow, no death, none of those things. We will simply have eternal life. And I'm not sure that we need any reward there because that is going to be incredible. Now, Jesus ends with, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And to explain that, he's going to tell a parable. But the chapter guys put a chapter 20 there, so I'm going to wait till next time. All right? Let's pray, and then if we have any Q&A, we'll do that.